It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Let's take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. Well, this evening we're continuing our study that we started this morning in Romans chapter 6, where the scripture says in verse number 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. We learned this morning uh, about grace and that grace does not give us a license to sin. Simply because there's grace in the world, you do not have a license to sin. Well, I'm good, I'm going to heaven, I'll do my own thing. No, no, no. Grace never gives you or me or anyone else a license to sin. It just doesn't. But what grace does do, verse number 16 says, Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servant you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Grace does afford you the privilege to pick your master. But how you live proves who your master really is, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. I'm not going to re-preach the message. I just want to give the background here a little bit. And, and Paul is very clear. Don't you get it? Don't you understand? Isn't this obvious to you? However it is you want to say that. Isn't this obvious to you that whoever you yield to, they're your master? It's a rhetorical question because it's rather obvious. It's rather apparent that the person to whom you yield is your master. And then he says in verse number 17, talking to these uh, Christians in Rome, the church at Rome, but God be thanked. And again, I said it this morning, I can't help but say it again. We can't help but be encouraged to turn page after page of Paul's letters and be reminded that this all comes back to the Lord himself. God be thanked. That you were the servants of sin. That's what you were. Time passed. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Grace transforms us. You were this. You are this. And it's because of God and to him we are grateful. It's that form of doctrine, the Bible says. Doctrine is under attack. The word doctrine simply means teaching. There's a movement in the world today of Christendom to remove any vestige of doctrine. When I was on vacation, I went to a couple different churches and some large and some small. I I went to one church on the island that I was on and it was the closest church. And last year when I was there, it was pastored by a a, a very uh, missionary that I knew from a a state uh, here up in Idaho, a church up in Idaho, I should say. And I was excited to go and I got up early in the morning and I checked their website and I checked the time. I even drove by the church on Saturday. Saturday to make sure the time was right, because sometimes people will change their time on their website and not on their church sign or vice versa, and if you've ever been to new churches, you know what I'm talking about, like, I followed the website and we're an hour and a half earlier, I followed the website and we're 30 minutes late, and so I drove by, I showed up on Sunday morning, uh, five minutes before church starts, I'm trying to see how the other half of you live, and um, just teasing, just teasing, 
for some of you, I'd, I'd have to show up late. Um, so <laughs> I'm just thinking of Joyce and Sam, so that's all I'm thinking of. So <laughs> Why do you say, oh, like that? Is that surprising to anyone? Uh, I'm teasing. I love those guys. They're going to get married here pretty soon. It's going to be awesome. They're going to name their first four children after me. It's... Uh, <laughs> Me and Bernie. They're going to name all their kids after the pastoral staff at Canyon Ridge. Uh, um, Their first one, the oldest one, will be Charlie, and then they have to wait 37 years to name the next one. So, (laughs) um, but I showed up at church, and the doors were locked, and nobody was there, and and it was too late for me to get to any other church on the island, because it was 10 o'clock, and that's when everybody started. So, I, t- I went back, and I watched a church, or I listened to a service, a church service, and I was I was pretty bummed by that. I texted Anthony I, King. I'm like, I guess the church, uh, you know, um, doesn't exist anymore. He, he, he texted me back. He said, no, I was checking out their Facebook page, and, and they actually just um, decided not to have service today. They just did it online and nobody wanted to show up this morning and I was like oh well there you go okay that's it the next week I I went to another church on Molokai and I mean to tell you one of the absolute best messages I've ever heard the best message I've ever heard on the subject that the pastor preached on it was absolutely amazing it was about 90 degrees outside windows were open giant fans were on that an eight-foot fan in one side of the gym that they were in and I, I was I was so moved by that but then I went to another church, one of the larger churches in the country, and basically they, they kind of gave the feeling and the idea and almost said these exact words, we don't want to focus on doctrine around here. That's just not our thing. Remember we had a family leave our church one time and they said, we want to belong to a church that doesn't focus on doctrine so much. I still have the email. I feel like there's too much focus on doctrine. When Paul is talking to them here, and doctrine simply means teaching. That's what he's talking about. And we describe doctrine sometimes as technical geeky stuff, but doctrine really means teaching. It's the teaching of the word of God. It's thus saith the Lord. It's what did God say? That's what we're teaching. And by the way, that's the ministry of Canyon Ridge. If you need something more than that, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be unkind. I wouldn't try to be that way in a million years about this subject, not in a million years. You're probably not going to find a great home here because this is what we want to do. We want to read the text. We want to explain the text. And we want to work the most diligent way we can to apply the text to your life. Because it's God's word. It's not my word. These aren't the words of Chris Chadwick. These are the words of God. And we work diligently for that. And we work diligently to not even let our illustrations distract from the teaching of the text. We want the illustrations to, to draw in the truth of the text. That's the idea here. And Paul is writing, and he's saying here this most important word, you've obeyed from the heart, that form of doctrine. I want to look just for a quick minute or two at this reality of doctrine. So let's do a Bible study together. None of the verses are on the screen intentionally, meaning I want you to find them in your Bible to help you know how to find it. Now, for some of you, you're going to have fast fingers and click on your iPad and find it, but I would encourage you to have a real Bible 
that you can pass down to your children and doesn't have distractions. I was preaching this morning and I got the update of my viewing time. I was glad while preaching I knew I was down 33% from last week or the week before. Ephesians chapter 4 verse number 14. We'll go in order. Ephesians 4 14. Turn there. Galatians, Ephesians, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 4, verse number 14. That ye henceforth, well, look, let's look at verse number 13. Till we all come in unity in the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, looking forward to the ultimate glorification of the believer with the Lord, that we henceforth, until then, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth and love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head even Christ. Let me just be very, very candid. There are any number of cultic groups in this world that have one satanic desire and that is to deceive people from following Christ. Make no mistake about that. Pastor, I think everybody's motives are pure. Sorry that you're wrong, but they're not. We are in a spiritual war against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Don't be tossed to and fro with that, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Here's what some people say. And, and Brother Ralph and I were talking about this earlier today. Matter of fact, I quoted this verse earlier today. This is one of my, I, I go over this verse, I think, two or three times a week as part of my regular memory work. And, and we were talking about this today. As the internet grows, this is only going to grow. Because the number of people who are like, oh, I'm on YouTube and I'm listening to so-and-so and so-and-so said thus and such. And boy, that really, here's what we hear now. That really resonated with me or I really identified with that terminology that people use. Can I be candid with you? I don't know that. I, I don't think it matters that it resonated with you or identified with you. The issue is, does it resonate with the scripture and identify with the word of God? And if it doesn't, we're supposed to avoid it. And not follow after it. Maybe no more children carried about with every wind of doctrine. Leslie, could you do me a favor? Would you go sit by your husband? It just feels odd watching you over here and him over there. <laughs> wondering why he didn't ask you to come and sit with him to begin with. How many of you were wondering the same thing? Why does this dude not ask his wife to sit with him? Do you not like her? I mean, do we need counseling? <laughs> Holy cow, if Debbie's in the room and not sitting with somebody, I, I want her to sit by me. I, I don't know, mate. Can I get an amen from the men in the room? I like my wife. I want her to sit by me. Tyler Wardlaw, would you counsel Bernie after service? Do some, would you do that? I appreciate that. It'd be great. Pray for him as well. He just tried to abuse Zane Garza, and uh, he's going to be entering anger management courses at any moment. Turn with me, if you would, to First Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy said, we're going somewhere, but I, I, we've got to understand this. Got to get there quickly. Galatians, Ephesians, 
Philippians, Colossians, 1st Second Thessalonians, 1st Timothy chapter 1, verse number 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. I, I, Timothy, I'm telling you to stay at Ephesus. I told you to stay at Ephesus. We need you at Ephesus as the leader of the church. And you need to make sure that, that those who are doing some teaching uh, for you, as every church has other people teach, you need to make sure that they're not teaching any other doctrine because some false doctrine has got into the church. And Timothy, it's your responsibility as the shepherd of the flock, as the pastor, to make sure that they're teaching the right thing. Verse number four, that they not give heed to fables and to endless genealogy which minister question, but rather rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. They're supposed to do what Paul is telling them to do and don't give themselves over to these fables and genealogies that cause about questions and stir up strife, but rather hold to biblical doctrine. It's Timothy's responsibility. Look over in chapter 4, verse number 3. I'm sorry, 13. Chapter 4, verse number 13. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given unto thee by prophecy, with the laying on the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. What things? Reading, exhortation, doctrine. Meditating on the gift that he has. Take heed unto thyself, verse number 16. And unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Timothy, you make sure that you watch yourself and you watch the doctrine that you have and you continue in that. And in doing that, you'll save yourself and them that hear you. Because if you start teaching some weak, anemic doctrine, you're going to cost people their spiritual lives. But some people say, well, my marriage is really struggling. I want some practical help for my marriage. Okay, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands love your, he, husbands love your wives as your own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. That's a doctrinal requirement for a husband. No, no, I want other things. I, I'm not trying to be funny. That's not my desire. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell jokes. It's funny, though. But no, I'm not trying to be funny. We want you to find help for your marriage. But can I tell you that if we're going to find true, lasting help for marriage, it's going to come because we follow the word of God. And God, who is the designer of marriage, has given the instruction for marriage in the word of God. And as Ralph and I were talking today, he, he, he so correctly said, and Pastor, we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We're supposed to make sure we're working diligently to study the Word of God, to know what God says, and, and we're working to apply it to our life as the Holy Spirit is working to apply the doctrine to our life as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16, look over there, a common passage, almost done. Weird introduction, I get it, but it, it, it's the basis for what we do. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of Scripture is God-breathed. 
literally God breathed. That's what it means. All scripture is given by the breath of God. God breathed his word into the men who were human authors. He did not void their personality, but they did not write their own opinion. He did not give them the concept of the word of God. He gave them the word of God. All scripture is God breathed and it is profitable. All of scripture is profitable for what? For doctrine, for teaching, for reproof or rebuke, for correction. Get your life right and instruction in righteousness. And people, people walk away. Somebody said last week, I go to some churches, they don't preach about sin. I think that's all you talk about. So, well, it's just because we're in that passage of the scripture and Bernie didn't have his wife sit next to him. So I got to deal with some things. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. You say, well, that's talking about pastors. Well, he's specifically talking about pastors by, by a specific interpretation, but generally he's talking about all people everywhere, that all people could be made perfect uh, through the word of God, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I got to hurry. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 2, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. That means when you feel like preaching and when you don't. He's talking to pastors here. Preach when you want to, preach when you don't want to. You say, how often is that? It's probably 50-50, 60-40, 70-30. You say, which one? Depends on the week. Depends on the weather. Depends on the spiritual attack that's gone on. That's, I, I, I'm being funny, but it really does. That's why I ask you to pray for some of the younger pastors of church plants here in the state of California and, and everywhere. Not, this is not unique to California. It's pastors everywhere that are, are diligently, uh, tirelessly working and they'll go week after week after week and see no one attend or they'll see no fruit or two or three guests that come. And we need to be in prayer for them when they're in season, when they want to be there and when they, when they don't really want to be there and they're wondering why they do what they do. Preach the word. The instant in season, out of season. And here's what you do with the word, Timothy. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering or patience and doctrine. Give people time to grow, but teach doctrine. Doctrine will reprove and rebuke and exhort. Because the time will come in verse number three when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Second John 9, turn there real quick. Second John, verse number 9. Or as they say in Australia, 2 John. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, 2 John 9, hath not God. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ. What does he mean by here? 
Well, in a general sense, he would be speaking of everything, but specifically, I would argue that he's talking about, I'll use a doctrinal term and then explain it, the soteriological doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The doctrine of Christ is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the doctrine of Christ. And whosoever transgresseth and abideth not, or doesn't believe that, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, verse number 10, and bring not this doctrine, or receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed, for he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. You say, well, what about like if I have some Mormon missionaries come to my house, should I give them water and food and wish them well? No. No. Well, I feel like that's unchristlike. No, it's very Christ-like, and it's commanded by Jesus. Don't bid them Godspeed. I, I won't even... Now, in their efforts as a missionary, I won't wish them a good day. Hope you have a good day. As a human being, if I see them in the street, man, I hope you're having a good day for sure. But if you're going to be promoting your cultic theology that is sending millions of people to hell, I can't wish you well. I just can't wish you well. God's word prevents me from doing that. Well, pastor, that sounds harsh. I get what it sounds like, but I'm just going to have to surrender that Jesus knows more than me. Jesus knows more than me. So with, with the idea of doctrine established, hopefully I've done a decent job. I want to take the next 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. And I want to finish up this morning's message with three points. Would you look at Romans chapter 6, verse number 18? Remember verse 15, grace doesn't give us a license to sin. Verse number 16, grace allows you to pick your master, but how you live proves who you picked. And verse Number 17, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which has delivered you. Grace transforms us. Verse number 18, Paul is being a somewhat redundant, which is why I'm going a little bit quicker tonight. Paul is being somewhat redundant with his teaching uh, and intentionally redundant. Remember, the Bible is never accidentally redundant. The redundancy of the scripture is to draw emphasis to the truth. And it could be to draw emphasis because we struggle with it. And you say, well, I don't struggle with it. Well, let's just chalk it up to the fact that God knows more than all of us. And there's probably a lot of people who do. And I'm not trying to be funny. There's times where I'm going, why is he saying that again? Anybody ever read that? Like, I feel like we just did that. Like, why was he doing that again? Because he's really trying to drive this truth home in our hearts and lives. And so Paul is dealing with this again through the inspiration of the Spirit, verse number 18, being made free from sin, you became uh, servants of righteousness. Point number four in our continued study this evening, grace freed you from sin. If you're a Christian here, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, grace freed you from sin. Grace freed you from sin. That's why he says, being made free from sin. You see why I went to college to get this? Yeah, not just anybody could come up with that. Oh, grace freed you from sin. Made free means to liberate from the power and the punishment of sin. I've been made free. 
It didn't come by this freedom by my ability. It came by the wonderful grace of Jesus. The bondage or the control of sin was defeated the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior. The very moment you got saved, the, the, the bondage, the power, the control of sin was defeated by the grace of Christ. Still has influence, but it doesn't have control. That's why you're no longer a blank. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Um, if you know my family and you know our story, you know that Gloria and I come from a long line on our paternal side from a long line of addicts. We are a family, maybe like some of you, where uh, my dad was an alcoholic by the time he was 17, took his first drink when he was five, got drunk the first time he was nine, and he was one of the uh, more stable of the brothers in the family. Which, if you know my dad, you're like, what kind of family is that? And I'm teasing. My dad's a godly man. Godly man. Uh, don't send him that clip. Um, I'm totally teasing. Uh, but my grandfather was an alcoholic. Gloria and I have seven uncles. Five of them were alcoholics. One was allergic to alcohol and one was almost an alcoholic. Our cousins have, uh, me, our generation of cousins, so many of them are addicts. And if you talk to them, uh, uh, here's what they say. Oh, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. Can I be very candid with you? If an alcoholic becomes a believer, he's now a believer, no longer an alcoholic. I appreciate so much addiction help groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and others. I'm, I'm very thankful for the diligent and faithful and tireless work that so many of those people do, Salvation Army and other groups. But I do have one, and, and it's not a nuanced argument, I do have one fundamental problem from the Christian perspective, and that is walking into a meeting and saying, my name is so-and-so, and I've been an alcoholic for so many years. I know what they're trying to do to help you understand that you, you will always be susceptible to addiction, and you have to be very, very careful not to let yourself think that you can go back into that lifestyle and find victory. I get that every fiber of my being gets that a hundred percent but can I let you understand theologically that the moment that you got saved you are a new creature old things are passed away all things have become new and you're no longer bound by the sin that once controlled you you are now protected by the blood of Jesus Christ and guided by the grace of Christ grace freed you from sin Grace freed you from a crummy attitude. Some of y'all grew up in crappy attitude families. Like critical. Grace freed you from that. When we talk about addicts, we often talk about, oh, that dude was alcoholic. Oh, that dude was, he was addicted to crack. Oh, that dude, he's a meth head. Oh, and that woman was a gossip like you can't believe. Only person worse gossip than her is her mom. Her mom could float a river of gossip. The song Oceans about gossip was written about that family. I mean, that woman had a tongue longer than the planet did. It reached to the sun and back. God freed you from that. 
Did you hear me? God freed you from that. God freed you from laziness. Here's the principle. I don't want to overapply it, but I kind of feel like it. Grace freed you from sin. Well, I just have to view porn. No, you don't. Verse number 18. Come on, let's accept that God's word is God's word. Being made free from sin. Some of you had sin happen to you as a kid that still influences your life, that maybe happened to you by somebody else. I'm not trying to be specific here. There could be a lot of things in this that, that could be applied. Grace freed you from that as well. Grace freed you from that. Doesn't mean you might not have to do some work. Doesn't mean there might not be some, some, some diligence that has to take place. Some of you grew up in abusive homes and either you were an abuser or you were too soft and, and you view yourself maybe in some difficult, difficult circumstances in difficult ways. Understand, and I want to be super kind and super clear and gracious here. The, the blood of Jesus Christ, the moment you got saved, freed you from the bondage of not only the sin that you did, but the sin that influenced you. It was a sin against God, make no mistake about it, but it does have implications in your life and you've been freed from that you've been freed from that when we talk about this we often think of of the homeless dude who's without hope but it could be the middle class couple who lives with animosity and bitterness in their heart toward one another It could be the single person who lives in private lust towards one another. It matter. Here's the deal. Listen to me. It doesn't matter what the sin is. You're freed from it. And that's what we have to understand. Oh, I can't get victory over this. No, no, don't believe the lie of Satan. You absolutely can't because you're freed from that. Grace freed me from sin. Verse number 18, look at the second part of it, 18b, being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness, I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members as servants to righteousness unto holiness. Number five, grace makes you a servant of righteousness. Grace makes you a servant of righteousness. Verse number 19. And Paul is writing his attorney's right, confusingly. He says, I'm talking as a man because of the infirmity or the weakness of your flesh or the imperfections of your flesh. You yielded your members servants or slaves it's in a plural here, so it's not do loss, it's do lose. As servants unto uncleanness, wickedness, and iniquity unto iniquity. Here's what he's saying. Before a person obeyed the gospel or accepted Christ, he yielded his members or his body, he's talking about the fleshly body, to serve uncleanness and to work sin. And he sinned and found that the more he sinned, 
Here's what he's saying. The more you sinned, the more you sinned. Okay, I'll work on it. The more a person in sin, they would sin, they would find it continually diminishing in its pleasure, so they would increase in their sin. And the sin would then grow. And then they would find that diminishing in its pleasure, because there's only pleasure in sin for a season, and then the sin would grow. And then that would diminish, and so the sin would grow. And so they started out really, really small, and before long their sin was massive. That's what he means in verse number 19. Uh, You've yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. It just kept growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And he found that sin enslaved him. And by the time he realized how big sin had grown, he was in bondage and in a habit that was not easily broken. We could say it this way. Sin simply leads to more sin no matter what the sin is. Drinking, immorality, pornography, just some things I was thinking of, just so you know. Well, I wasn't thinking of them like that, but overeating, greed, lust, gossip, criticism, grumbling, cursing, selfishness, a desire for popularity or power or recognition or fame. The point is this, that before you got saved, you sinned and it had diminishing returns. So you sinned some more and then diminishing returns. So you sinned some more. And before you realized that you were totally controlled by it. I have an uncle, I've shared the story before. He's with the Lord now. He was a saved man, but he was totally controlled by a few things that weren't the Lord. Food, anger, and cigarettes. And when he started smoking, he was, I don't know, I think he told me nine years old. When he started smoking, nine years old, like, holy cow. By the time I knew him when I was nine years old, and he was probably 35, what do you think, like 35, 40, by the time I, I knew him, somewhere in there, and he was a two-carton-a-day smoker. Now, somebody might say, no, you mean packs. No, 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 I mean cartons. My sister's here, I'm not exaggerating. That was not the height of his smoking. The height of his smoking was three cartons a day. He's the guy, so you've been here for a while, that he would have a cigarette, he would leave to take, he would take me, I'd spend the night with my cousin, and he would take me to take me back to my house, uh, and uh, we would get in his, we were getting ready to get in his car, and as he's leaving the house, he would smoke a cigarette, he'd get in the car, and he'd put the cigarette in the ashtray to back up. While he's backing up, he always had a pack in his pocket, he'd have a carton, in, a carton or two or three in his uh, glove box, and then some in the trunk, and while he's backing up, he's pulling one out of 
of his pocket. He's putting it in his mouth. He put the car. I can still remember the, like the, the green uh, galaxy with mag wheels that he had. And it just kind of floated because of the, the, the smoke that was on it. And, uh, and he'd have it there and he'd light it. And we'd get to a stop sign and he'd put it down to turn the wheel. And, and he, before he realized it, he had opened, pulled another one out, put it in his mouth. He had lit another one and he smoked it. And I mean, I'm telling you, it was uncommon for that not to happen. Gloria will testify to this. If she doesn't, I'll yell it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Gloria will testify to this, that it was not uncommon for him to always have one cigarette lit. And, and he would most of the time had two and sometimes three lit. And I've seen him smoke two cigarettes at one time because he had so many lit. And I don't remember, I don't remember a time in his life when he wasn't smoking, unless he went into a restaurant that didn't allow smoking. I've watched him eat and smoke, drink milk and smoke, everything. He was, it was just iniquity unto iniquity. You say, how can somebody get like that? Because that's what sin does. It might not be as obvious to you. He's dying. He's in his mid-70s. He and I become friends. He gave me about half of my library. I had to put them in boxes. Bernie will remember this. Boxes with baking soda in socks. Socks. Boxes with socks. With socks for about nine months before I could open them up. My office smelled like a, a, a giant cigarette factory. People say, why does it smell in here? I said, it used to be a Southern Baptist church. And, um, <laughs> and um, I mean, he's 70 plus years old. He called me one day. He said, hey, Chris. I'm like, hey, Uncle Bill, how you doing? I'm just, uh, and I loved him to death. Boy, I, I loved him to death. His, his son, my cousin Keith, we were like brothers growing up. And I just got out of the hospital. Oh, what happened? Well, I was smoking with oxygen and it blew up half my face. Well, Uncle Bill, did you give up smoking? They're not taking that from me. It's like Charlton Heston, from my cold, dead hand. (laughs) Iniquity undo iniquity. Now, that's my Uncle Bill, clear illustration, but that's just what sin does. And grace... Here's what Paul is helping us to understand. Grace takes us from that. Look at the verse. From iniquity unto iniquity. Even so now, that's how you were. Even so now, or in the same way, yield or willfully give up your members, your body, servants to righteousness unto holiness. Do loss. Slaves. Slaves to righteousness, the adherence to what God requires. As you were a slave to sin, in that same way, be a servant to righteousness and righteousness unto holiness, which leads us to the next verse and the next point, or the next point, verse number 20, for when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What, what fruit had you in the things that you're now ashamed? Now, don't think about them, but how many of you have sat up at night or in the middle of the day or in a time of quiet loneliness going, I can't believe I did that. Why did I do that? What was I thinking? 
I hope nobody ever finds out about that because you're just ashamed by it. Am I the only one in the room that has those thoughts? I doubt it. What was I thinking? Why did I say that? Why did I hurt them like that? You see what I'm saying? What fruit had you in those things you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is what? Death. It's death. And so he's contrasting that, verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants of righteousness, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Now, let me be clear. He is not saying if you live holy that you'll gain everlasting life. No, you have everlasting life and the fruit of holiness is that you're never going to be ashamed of what is going on. And so here's the Sixth point, grace and holiness are inseparably linked. Grace never produces a fleshly behavior. Grace always makes us more Christ-like. And Paul is saying, hey, I don't want to take these thoughts from your mind of what sin did to you. Learn the lesson that sin is destructive. And learn the lesson that holiness is wonderful and the end of it is everlasting life and you never want to forget it. And live your life for the things that are holy. One commentator said this, true faith in Christ then because of what we just talked about Take seriously the call to obedience and holy living or sanctification. Holiness in a Pauline sense or in the book of Romans or the Pauline epistles is not to be understood in a legalistic way as the result of following a strict moral code, praise the Lord, but as a life of utter goodness and wholehearted dedication to God, one manifestly set apart for him. Those who choose to become slave to righteous living recognize that they are called to become holy and therefore do those things that lead to holiness and stay away from things that would keep them from it. It's not a list of rules, but we do have to ask some questions. Where do you go? What do you listen to? What do you watch? It'd be inappropriate in a world that is given to entertainment not to ask those questions. Parents, what do you let your kids watch? Teenagers, what do you watch? There's going to be some shame if you fail to live a holy life. And grace and holiness are inseparably linked. The whole purpose of grace is to bring about Christ-like change. Christ-likeness and holiness, you could say it this way, are synonyms. It would not be a, a, a conceptual abuse. Holiness and Christ-likeness are the same thing. Why? Because Jesus is holy. So be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus is completely holy. He's saying that some this morning, I forget the title, but the line is holiness is Christ in me. The first time I heard it, I'm like, I don't know if that is. So I began to study it. And you know what? Holiness is Christ in me. 
The more I am like Christ, the more holy I am. There can be pretentious and fake holiness, but that's what it is. It's pretend holiness. True holiness always brings about genuine Christ-likeness. I've gone too long. Look at verse 23. It's like Paul is ending this, and he says, the wages of sin is death. This is such a wonderful verse when talking to people about salvation. What you earn because of sin is death. Because you're a sinner, what you earn is death. But in truth, when it comes to lost people, you were born in sin. You were literally born to die because of sin. Sin contaminates everything. The wages of sin is death. He's talking to believers here. You want to live in sin? The end state of sin, believer, church at Rome, Canyon Ridge Baptist Church, if you live in sin, the end state of that is death. That affair leads to death. Bitterness leads to death. Anger leads to death. Gossip leads to death. Fighting leads to death. War leads to death. That's what Paul is saying. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, looking forward to the return of Christ, looking forward to being with Christ in heaven forever, looking forward to that is a gift of God and salvation is a gift of God. We cannot earn it. We cannot earn it. I'm not looking for an amen point, but you should amen it, but that's not what I'm looking for. I'm just, I just want to remind us that salvation is a gift. It is not earned. I cannot in any way, shape or form earn it. The gift of God is eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ and Christ alone. See, here's what this whole passage, verses 15 to 23 says. If you're saved, you're different. If you're saved, you're different. That's what grace makes you. If you're saved, grace makes you different. Grace will never leave you like you were when you found it. It always makes you more like Christ. Seven points dealing with the realities of grace and how grace changes us. Is it changing you into Christ's likeness? Father, I pray that you'd bless our time together tonight in the Word. I pray you'd be... Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.